Welcome to those of you visiting us. We're going through the book of 1 Samuel. Our normal pattern is to go verse by verse through books of the Bible, and so we finished a journey through the Gospel of Mark, and then for the last maybe month, month and a half or so, uh, we've been in 1 Samuel. Today we're in 1 Samuel 7, so turn there if you will, 1 Samuel 7, verses 2 through 17, so verse 2 through the end of the chapter. Last week we looked at the fact that God was, or God is, a dangerous God, and that's clearly seen in chapters 5 and 6 of 1 Samuel. And here we come to another aspect of God's character. He is a God who restores, restores relationships, restores the relationship between Him and those who are His who've sinned against Him. And so, I've entitled this message, The God Who Restores. I was thinking this week about the worst the worst feeling. What is the worst feeling to have? Uh, I don't think it's a physical sickness. I really think the worst feeling is to be distant from the living God, to know that there's a problem between you and Him. And that is certainly something that those who are living apart from God and who reject God feel at different times if they're honest. It's not a comfortable feeling to be living apart from God's Word. Yes, there's a certain pleasure in sinning, but there is a certain guilt also that's true. We know that the Bible testifies to that. Those of us who have uh, come to know Christ know what that feeling is like before we knew Christ, that heaviness of guilt. But I think even as a believer, when you are in moments of weakness, maybe periods of weakness, days of weakness, and you know that you are not living in, a, in terms of not living rightly in terms of your relationship with Christ, there is a guilt that sets in that is not comfortable at all. It eats at you. It wears at you. And this is the feeling of the people in 1 Samuel. So far, the people of Israel are doing nothing right in 1 Samuel. Nothing. False worship. There is a there's using God superstitiously to earn a military victory. He's not going to be used like that, so that doesn't work. But here in 1 Samuel 7, there's some light. There's some encouragement. These people start mourning over their sin. They start mourning over the fact that they are not living rightly before God. Now, understand this. They're not sad because bad things are happening to them. That's totally different. They're sad because they know they've been sinning against the God that loves them and who's rescued them multiple times. So there's a feeling of being distant from God in this passage, and the people of God want Him back, if you will. And we see in this passage that God accepts Israel back as they turn to Him with a heart of repentance. So last week, again, we saw a dangerous God, and today we see a restoring God. We're going to look at this passage in four parts, the four features of being restored back to God. The four features of being restored back to God. And I want you to see from this passage what it means, what's involved in you coming back to the Lord. It might just be uh, for a believer in a, a, a season of, of being distant from Him, not walking with Him, and so you come back. It could be for you who aren't a follower of Christ, this might be the first time that you come to the Lord and seek forgiveness and a relationship with a living God, which He longs to have with His creatures. So if you feel distant from the Lord today, if you are distant from the Lord today, this is a great passage. If you are not distant from the Lord and you've confessed your sins and you're walking with Him faithfully by His grace, this is a passage to know because you might at some other point fall into a moment of weakness and need to be restored again, or you might help someone else 
through returning to the Lord in repentance and trust. So, four features of being restored back to God. The first is this, it's repentance. We see this in verses 2 to 4. Repentance. And there are really two things, two aspects about repentance that will be highlighted in these verses. First, we'll see a mourning over sin, and then next we'll see a putting away of sin. So, repentance includes a mourning over sin and also a putting away of that sin. Notice verse 2, from the day the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. This is a call to repentance from Samuel. This is repentance from the people of the Lord. They respond to that, as we'll see. But notice at the beginning, they are lamenting after the Lord. If you look back, it's probably maybe on the same page. Maybe some of you have to turn back a page to chapter 6, verse 19. Chapter 6, verse 19, when they lost in battle earlier to the Philistines, chapter 6, verse 19 says this, and he struck some of the, I'm sorry, this is when the ark comes back and, and they, they, they wrongly look into it and the Lord rebukes them, strikes them, executes them for this sin. Notice that they mourn, verse, chapter 6, verse 19. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Now, I want you to see two different types of mourning. There's a mourning there in chapter 6, verse 19. They're mourning because they've had some of their brothers struck, executed, because they handled the Lord wrongly, if you will, in chapter 6, verse 19. They mourn because the Lord has struck them with a great blow. It's different here in chapter 7, verse 2. They are mourning, they're lamenting after the Lord. They know they've sinned against the Lord. And that'll come out in a moment. It's a different type of mourning. So, so your child sins, disobeys, and then you give them a consequence, and they're sad, they mourn. They, they don't mourn because they sinned against you, this wonderful mother and father. How could I sin against you? You're so gracious to me. You provide for me meals, three of them a day. You provide so much for me. They're not mourning over that. They're mourning because you took away the video games or the playtime with a friend, or the phone, or whatever it might be. That's the wrong kind of mourning. That's mourning over the consequences. This is a mourning over a fracture in the relationship. These people are, in verse 2, lamenting after the Lord. They want their God back. And this is a good thing. When you sin against the Lord, when you've when you've wrongly responded to Him, it is good to mourn not just the consequences of your sin, it is good to mourn the fact that you have sinned against Him. Matthew 5, blessed are those who mourn. And the idea, the thought is it's mourning over sin, for they shall be comforted. Second Corinthians 7 says that godly sorrow leads to repentance. A godly sorrow over sin leads to repentance. So again, this isn't just a sorrow because they're suffering. It's a sorrow because they've sinned against the Lord. And evidently, this sorrow had been lasting 
in some shape or fashion for about 20 years. We don't know what goes on throughout the 20 years, but we know that at this point it's been 20 years, and for some reason Samuel then calls the assembly of Israel to come together. Verse 3, and Samuel said to, those, to, all, said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with your heart, because that is a question, you know. So if you're sad truly from the heart, if you're sad and you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, not just sad because you got defeated by the Philistines, not just sad because the ark isn't where it should be. If you're truly sad, if you're coming to Him with all your heart, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. Here's something that's true of the people of Israel, and it's not just true of the people of Israel, it's true of a number of cultures in the ancient Near East. They would worship multiple gods. Now, we think, well, the people of God certainly wouldn't do that. That was the other nations. No, the people of God did that. So they would go through the motions of worshiping Yahweh, sacrificing like He wanted them to, but they would also go and worship pagan deities, pagan gods, like the other nations did. And so sometimes in their history, they would say, we want Yahweh back. We want Him to bless us, but they wouldn't let go of the other gods. That's not true repentance. So Samuel's saying, if you're coming back with your, all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord. The Ashtaroth, a, a pole, a, a, just a giant pole where people would sin. The Ashtaroth represented a god of fertility a god of fertility and war, so it would, it would defeat his enemies, her enemies, and will provide for people, provide children for the people, provide food for the people. So this Astra, there was a pole that represented this god, and people would literally have immoral sexual relations around these poles, oftentimes on hills. They would do that in, in worship of this god so that this god would bless them with children, bless them with food, everything they needed. And they would worship Yahweh. That's what they would do. This syncretism. They, they would do both things. And so Samuel's saying, no, that's not how this God is to be worshipped. You are not to have any other gods except for Him only. So put away these foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. You do that, He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. This rather new group in, in this territory, the group that would be at odds with Israel all through the book of Judges, all through this time, God would defeat the enemies, the Philistines, if the people of God returned to the Lord with our whole heart. Don't dabble with other things. Simply trust Him, serve Him alone. So, verse 4, the people of Israel put away the Baals. Baal and Ashtoreth were said to be married, both gods of fertility, put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. They respond in repentance. They put away the idols, and they serve the Lord only. So if someone's going to be right with God again, it will include repentance, which includes mourning over sin and a putting away of sin. Mourning of sin and a putting away of idolatry. Mourning over sin and putting away the thing or the thought or the love or whatever it is that competes with a true worship to the true and living God. This is a New Testament reality as well. If you're repenting, you stop sinning 
and you trust in the Lord. You turn away from sin and trust in the Lord. And notice that, that it would be a public thing. Their repentance would be public. You had to take down a pole. It would be something people could see. It wasn't like our prayers, like, Lord, I, please forgive me. I'll really never do it again. No, no there, was, there was something to it. There was something to stop doing. There, there was, a, there was a, a smartphone to be eliminated from the home. I'm getting a flip phone. I don't want that temptation. There, there was something tangible done. That's repentance. I'm not going there anymore. I'm actually having accountability, so I don't go there anymore. I, I gossip way too much. So before this phone call, I'm going to get on the phone call with a friend and say, listen, if I'm tempted to gossip, if I start gossiping in any way, I need you to stop me. That, that's a visible reputation of repentance. You're doing something that shows you don't want to do the old, you want to do the new. That's a good thing. Repentance actually does something. Repentance kills something, kills a sin. It doesn't just feel bad for it and hope that you don't do it again. Repentance takes action. Listen to James chapter 4 in terms of the part about repentance in terms of mourning over sin. Okay, listen to this. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. So it's calling for a mourning over sin. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Sometimes we're too happy while we sin. You should be sad, is what James is saying. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Humble yourselves. Get low before the Lord and He will exalt you. So in repentance, there's a mourning over sin that's required, and there's also a putting away of sin that's required. So, is there a sin that you're holding on to? Is there a sin that you keep engaging in? And you feel bad after you do it, but then you don't change anything. You just kind of send this wish out to the heavens, I, I hope I don't do it again. Well, there are ways to actually bring that about. Again, get rid of the phone, put the computer in a public place, ask a friend to keep you from gossiping, get off of social media, delete the accounts. When I'm on social media, I start complaining and I get bitter and I become cruel to people. Okay, put it away. Get rid of it. When I watch the news for 20 hours a day, for some reason I get angry, okay? Lord, I hope that doesn't happen again next day, 20 hours. Put away the sin. Flee the temptation. Repentance is the first feature of being restored back to God in this passage. Secondly, we see intercession. Intercession, verses 5 through 9. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah. And I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord, God, our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. 
So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. You see intercession here. You see the people crying out, the people asking Samuel to cry out to the Lord for them, and then Samuel cries out to the Lord for them. That, that, that phrase is used two times in these verses. Intercession is necessary. These prayers on behalf of another that God will listen to is part of the restoration process. Let me say that again. These prayers on behalf of another, behalf of another sinner that God listens to are part of His restoration process. So Samuel gathers all these people together at Mizpah, this, this name that means watchtower. From Mizpah, you could see west into the valleys. This was a place of frequent ga- the frequent gathering of Israel at this time. So Samuel calls all the people of Israel together. I mean, just think of that. To us, it's just a phrase. We skip by it in our Bibles. But people would travel to Mizpah. It, this is a big deal. Israel's all coming together. Samuel's got something to say. So gather together all from all of Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So Samuel's going to pray over his people, if you will. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. That's a sign of confession of sin, washing away sin. That's what they're doing. And water didn't just come out of a faucet. Water was hard to obtain. This, this, is, a, this is a sign of of mourning. It's a sign over, it's a sign of them knowing they've wronged the Lord, so they pour out this water. It's a sign of confession, and they fast. They don't eat. The hunger displays a hunger to be restored back to the Lord, and they say, we have sinned against the Lord. Notice they didn't say, the Philistines have defeated us. God help. No, no, they know, kind of like David knew in Psalm 51, I've sinned against the Lord, you, against you and you only have I sinned. They know that the problem is they've sinned against the Lord. This is a good sign. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. I wonder if these prayers were effective. I wonder if Samuel praying on behalf of the people, these prayers were listened to by God. Verse 7, now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. Hey, they're all gathered in one location. We're stronger than they are. They're not gathering a military force. We have a military force. Let's get them. The lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord for us, so keep praying. This is a good sign. Previously, they said, where's the good luck charm? Where's the ark? We'll have the ark and we'll win. Well, they got the ark and then they lost the battle to the Philistines. So they know that's not the way to go. So they believe that Samuel continuing to pray for them will be effective. That's good. Verse 9. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. So Samuel says, come together, I'm going to pray for you. They hear the Philistines are coming, they say, keep praying for us. And Samuel says, I'm going to make a sacrifice, and I'm going to pray to the Lord. And he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord answered him. The Lord responds to the prayers of others on your behalf. The Lord responds to your prayers on behalf of others. This is called intercessory prayer, and it's found in the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
The Lord loves to listen to the prayers of people praying for others. Jesus himself is the perfect intercessor, isn't he? The great intercessor, Hebrews 7.25, he lives to make intercession for us. He said in Revelation 12 that he prays for us day and night. It's said in Luke 22 when he talks about Peter and the fact that Satan wanted to sift Peter like wheat, wanted to destroy Peter, wanted Peter's faith to have a final fall, a final turning away like Judas's faith. Jesus says to Peter, Satan's demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you so that your faith may not fail. Jesus praying for Peter. James 5.16 tells us to have people pray for us. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. James 5.16. Samuel, again, in a little bit, in a few uh, chapters later, chapter 12, verse 23. Listen to this. Listen to what Samuel says about the importance of prayer, his prayer on behalf of the people. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Notice Samuel believed the best things that he could do for the people were to be to pray for them and to instruct them. What are elders called to do in the New Testament church? Pray for their people and instruct them. Same reality. What did Jesus do? Prayed for his people, instructs his people. What is Jesus still doing by the, his spirit? Well, he's praying for us in heaven. We know that, Revelation 12. And he's also instructing us through his word. This is how a person is restored back to God, prayers of another, and it happens here 1 Samuel 7, 5 through 9. <clears throat> I'm reading this book um, on the, the Cambridge Seven. It's, it's seven students from Cambridge that um, some of them were unconverted, became saved when, when D.L. Moody came and did his crusades there in Cambridge in the 1800s. And uh, they were saved, and they, 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 some of them grew slowly, some of them grew quickly. But one, th- one thing that happened there at Cambridge is these seven students began to uh, feel the pull on their heart to go into missions work in China. Some of these students were actually famous athletes, and it was really foolish of them to give up uh, the success that they had coming in terms of athletics to go and leave and maybe never be seen again in China. And so these people, uh, these, these seven men determined to leave Cambridge, leave even maybe fame. Some of them came from wealthy families to leave money, and they decided to go and try to bring the gospel to some unreached people groups there in China. This mission led by the man Hudson Taylor, you maybe heard of his name, head of the China Inland Mission. He needed more workers, and these seven were determined to go. It's, it's a fascinating story in modern missions. Um, I think the book's called The Cambridge Seven. I'm reading it for the second time. It's, it's just encouraging. But in reading it the second time, I remember that I, I, I came to realize I missed this story the first time I read it. Uh, it's a story of an old lady. This is, this is earlier than the time of these Cambridge Seven. It's when some of them were younger, like, like children. 
It's the story of an old lady that began praying for two of those boys in the Cambridge Seven when they were young. Her name's Mrs. Simmons, and I want to read this paragraph to you about Mrs. Simmons. Mrs. Simmons' face was as bright as the brass knocker, which was the pride of her cottage. And if she was poor, she was happy. She waved to the huntsman, so she's standing outside of her cottage, and these people are going on a hunt. You know, the hounds are going out. Picture England, okay? So, wealthy family going out on this hunt, and she's standing there waving to the party as they go out. She waved to the huntsman in his pink coat and bobbed a little curtsy to the master and to her squire and his lady and waved merrily to the chattering children on their ponies who waved back. There were plenty of children, some on leading reins, others riding proudly by themselves. But as she watched, she was especially struck by one family, which she had often seen before, the sons and daughters of Captain Polehill Turner of Howberry Hall. Back at her fireside, the old woman felt certain that her Savior her constant companion in the lonely cottage, was calling her to pray for those children. And since Mrs. Simmons was accustomed to obey her master, she responded promptly and continued day by day to remember them in prayer. Well, two of those children, Arthur and Cecil Polehill Turner, became two of the Cambridge Seven. Converted, then later on in life, left Cambridge to go to the mission field and serve their king. Do you think that had anything to do with Mrs. Simmons' prayers? No. Coincidence. Intercessory prayer is something the Lord loves to listen to. I, I should have been writing these things down, but over the last few months, I've seen the Lord answer in my prayer life and in others around me as we've talked about intercessory prayer, seen Him answer specific questions almost immediately in certain cases. Intercessory prayer something that the Lord hears and responds to. Happens here in 1 Samuel chapter 7. So let me say this, family members, grandparents, mothers, fathers, the greatest two things you can do for your children, grandchildren are to instruct them, but don't also forget the second one, and also to pray for their souls. The Lord listens to praying grandparents. He listens to praying old widows. He listens to praying mothers and fathers. Pray for your children's souls. Don't just pray for their future careers or future spouses. Pray for their souls. The rest will take care of itself. Pray for their souls. Church, let's be a church that prays for one another and one another's spiritual needs. Now you think, well, we're a church. That's what we do. No, no, no. That's not a given. When you see the 8 to 10-year-olds walking out, pray for them on a Sunday morning. Jason asked you to pray for the children and children's ministries. Pray for them. When you see the weekly email that comes out with prayer requests, pray for people on there. And again, not just praying prayer requests that, that will, be, will make life easier here on earth. Pray for spiritual prayer requests. Pray for strength for people. There may be people in the church that aren't forgiving others. Pray that they would have a heart that is, is enamored with the forgiveness that they've received from the Lord, that they would forgive others. Pray those types of prayers. Pray for people who are tempted greatly. Pray for people who are failing in their leadership of the home. Pray for people who are serving but without joy. Pray for people who are growing and praise the Lord for that. <clears throat> there are prayers to pray for one another, and the Lord listens to intercessory prayer. So please, please, please pray for one another. Please pray for the elders, I say on behalf of the elders. 
please pray for one another. Make it a practice. Maybe you pray for the people that you sit next to on a Sunday morning. I don't know them, okay, but you can pray for them this week. I always sit next to them. That's my daughter. Great. Pray for her this week. Pray, pray, pray for one another. The Lord responds to that. He does that here in this passage. Now, there's a third feature of our restoration to God in this passage, and it's victory. Victory is a feature. When you come back to God, when you are restored back to God, God is a victor, and you receive victory. God defeats Satan. You receive that. God forgives sin. You don't have to pay for your sin anymore. There's victory to be found in Jesus Christ. I know we walk around as Christians in this world and we think about all the defeats Christianity seems to suffer. We are victors. We are more than conquerors. We're on the right side here, all by His grace. Notice the victory in verses 10 to 14. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Fascinating. The Lord, as His people returned to Him, gave them very tangible victories. We know that the Lord had allowed the Israelites to suffer at the hands of the Philistines. Now the people of Israel, their heart comes back to the Lord and He is that military force for them. He defeats their enemies. Notice in verse 10 that the Lord thundered. There, there was literally thunder, the sound of thunder, and that freaked out, scared the Philistines, threw them into confusion. The people of that time period believed that when thunder happened, it was because a God was doing something, a God was going to be at work. So they draw near to Israel, and all of a sudden there's thunder, and they're scared. They're confused because they know the God of Israel is on His people's side. That's how they understood that. And they were right. The God of Israel is on His people's side, and they were defeated before Israel. Notice also verse 12, Samuel takes a stone, sets it up there at Mizpah, and calls its name Ebenezer. We just sung the song, Here I Raise My Ebenezer, and we sing that and we go, I have no idea what that means, but it sounds beautiful, so let's keep going. Here, here I set up my stone of remembrance. God has been good to me. I hope from now on when you sing that song and you say, here I raise my Ebenezer, your mind just goes back to some way God has been good to you. God's been faithful to me. That's what Samuel does. God's been good to us. And he says, till now the Lord has helped us. Look at our history. The Lord's helped us. Now, in saying that, Israel's been defeated and lost many people at the hands of the Philistines. But in the sovereign purposes of God, it's part of God's faithfulness to His people. So even the difficult times, 
You can trace His faithfulness through them. Up until now, the Lord has helped us. Samuel wants that to be known. And again, that phrase that we saw so often last week, the hand of the Lord was against, the hand of the Lord was against, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. As we're reading this, we know that the people have returned back to the Lord, and now His hand is against their enemies. And then just so we don't skip over it and miss it, very last sentence of verse 14, there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Okay, who are they? What's the big deal there? The Amorites, the the other people of the land in Canaan, the other people in that area. So there were times where Israel was at war with the Philistines and another nation, or not the Philistines and this nation over here. But the Lord didn't just defeat the Philistines, He also gave them peace with the people around them. The Lord is clearly blessing Israel as they've returned to Him. Don't miss that. When we return to God through Christ, we are victorious. So let me ask this. Believer, put yourself here in 1 Samuel 7. Are you discouraged in any way in terms of how you've dishonored the Lord in any way? Are you discouraged by how you've dishonored the Lord? So what do you do if you are? Well, you take confidence in His victory for you. As you've returned to Him in repentance, you take confidence in His victory for you. I'm going to read you a passage. Notice the the victory the people of God have, okay? And I'm not going to tell you the reference. Just listen to the words. Paul says this to one of the churches, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and knowledge. Anything you need for speech that honors the Lord, any knowledge of Him that you need to know, He's given you. Even as a test, as, as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you also are not lacking in any gift, you have what you need, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. Have you ever felt like you're going to outsin your salvation? Well, Paul told this group, He, Jesus Christ, will sustain you at the end. Listen to this, it gets better. Guiltless in the day of our Lord, day, day of the Lord, day of judgment. You will be sustained to the end. You will stand there without any guilt on the day of judgment. Any of you want that? I do. If you're in Christ, you have that. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You know who Paul wrote that to? The worst church in the New Testament, the Corinthians. But they believed in Jesus Christ. They trusted in Christ. So Paul is sure that God will sustain them to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because they were faithful? Nope. See chapters 2 through 14. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Why can the people of Israel know that they're right before this holy God that they've sinned against? Because God will be victorious for them. God will forgive them. God will reconcile them to Himself. Why does the New Testament church, why does the New Testament person, you and me, why can we, even despite our sin, know that we're right before Him? Because we trust in His forgiveness of us. It's His merit, not our own. So, Christian who is convicted by their sin, conviction is good. If it leads you to repentance, and repentance is good, 
if you accept what Christ has done and then you rejoice in the forgiveness you have. I say this all the time. You can print a t-shirt. Speaking of t-shirts and the children's ministry one, you can print a t-shirt with this saying, repentance leads to joy. Yes, repentance includes mourning, but it leads to joy when you believe that Jesus Christ forgives you. God forgives through Jesus Christ. So, remember that God has made you victorious. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not in Christ, I want you to, I want to make sure you see this truth or you hear this truth. See, the Philistines were the enemies of Israel. The New Testament teaches that our greatest enemy is death. You know that. You don't want your loved ones to die. You don't want to die. Our greatest enemy is death. The Bible teaches that death comes because of sin, not because of cancer, not because of murders, but all that comes because of sin. Your greatest enemy is death, therefore your greatest enemy is sin. The Bible says that our sin separates us from a holy God. Our sin makes us the object of God's wrath. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. There's no hope if you're spiritually dead. But the Bible also teaches that God sent His Son, and and that shouldn't be too familiar that we lose the idea of the grace of that. God sent His Son to rescue sinners. God sent His Son to rescue you and me. God sent His Son to live perfectly and to give us His perfect obedience in exchange for our sin. That's the great exchange. That's what the Bible teaches. Our greatest enemy is sin, and God has sent His own Son to deal with our sin, our sin against the Holy God. His Son comes and takes that away so that we can stand, as I read just a moment ago, stand guiltless in the day of judgment. As a matter of fact, we're coming up on Christmas here. I'll be here before you know it. We're coming up on Christmas, and when Jesus was going to be born, an angel said this to the father of Jesus, the, 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 the one who cared for him on earth, Joseph. He said this. He said, she, your wife, Mary, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, meaning God saves. You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's why Jesus came. So if you know you are guilty before God, that's good that you know that. Go to Him and mourn and tell Him you need mercy. But then know this, He gives mercy. His Son came to die for your sin, and He lives. He came out of the tomb three days later to prove God accepted that sacrifice. You can trust Him for eternal life because He's alive. So, As I said earlier, repent, mourn over your sin, and trust and find victory over sin. That's what Christians are, people who have victory over their sin. Christians, any Christian in this room is not any better than you. We are the same as you. We just accept the sacrifice Christ has made in our place, and we trust that we're going to heaven because of Him. This is not a self-righteous group. This is a group in awe of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to be in awe of Christ with us. I think of Psalm 34. And and on behalf of this church, saying to you who maybe don't know Christ, who aren't a follower of Christ, magnify the Lord with us. Come home. Come into the kingdom through Christ. Be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. I, I just prayed for a family who lost a kid in a motorcycle accident. I don't know how long you have. I don't know if this is the last sermon you'll hear. 
come to Christ today. Life is uncertain. So we see some features of being restored back to God, don't we? Repentance. We see intercession, intercessory prayer, and we see a victory that God gives his people. Well, finally, let's see this fourth point. I'll give you another term, ordinary means. And right now you're asking, what in the world does he mean? I'll explain, okay? Ordinary means. So the people of God lament over their sin against God. So there's repentance. They ask Moses, or sorry, Moses, he did this too, Samuel to intercede for them. Samuel intercedes. What, is, what happens after that? God gives victory. All right, so we see these things happening. The people of God are restored back to God. Now what's life going to look like? Let's notice the ordinary means. This is what day-to-day life would look like. Listen, not, not everything is a mountaintop experience at Mizpah. Hey, remember when we all like, came to Mizpah? We all traveled, all our kids and cousins and family members, and we came to the Lord, and we knew that we'd sinned against the Lord, and we heard the Philistines coming up behind us. Remember how scared we were and how moms protected their children? Remember that? And then we cried out for Moses, you got, or, sorry, Samuel, pray for us, and Samuel prayed for us, and then the Lord thundered, and we defeated the Philistines, and we were reconciled back to God. Remember that? Uh, I don't remember that. Of course they remembered that. Today's day and age. Remember the Billy Graham crusade? We, we went to the football stadium. He was there, and we, people walked the aisle. Big thing. Remember the winter retreat for youth group? Just big thing out of the ordinary. We went there. Remember the conference we went to? That was so wonderful. Preaching, heard the word, responded in faith, and came to Christ. So much of life, or so little of life is this bi- these big things. But what's the ordinary thing? How does God normally work? Well, here it is in verses 15 to 17. This is just normal everyday life, post-Mizpah. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on the circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Shiloh's done, desecrated. Philistines took care of that previously. So Samuel makes an altar there at his home in Ramah, a place where people can gather, But notice the normal thing to do wasn't, let's call everyone back to the mountain. That just happened here. The normal thing that would happen, Samuel would travel around. If there were any disputes, he would settle the disputes. He would teach people what God wanted them to do. He would rebuke them if they were in sin. He would comfort them with God's word. That was the normal thing. And that was meant to keep the people trusting and following their God the ordinary means. So when you, who are maybe in sin for a time, and and you hear a message like this, and you read 1 Samuel 7, and you think, I need to return back to the Lord with my whole heart, and you mourn over your sin, and you put away the sin that's been entangling you, and you ask for people to pray for me, pray for me, please pray for me. Jesus, I know you're praying for me. I know you intercede for me. Pray for me. And Lord responds. Lord gives you victory. Lord forgives. Then what? I need another conference. No. I need to to travel to Israel for some spiritual high. Nope. Ordinary means. How does God grow his people? Ordinary ways. 
Now, when we hear the word ordinary, it seems like an insult kind of. Hey, did you see that new girl at school? Yeah, she's ordinary. It doesn't sound like a compliment. I would encourage you to hear the word ordained in there, okay? A way blessed by God, ordinary. A way ordained by God. What are God's ordinary, ordained ways that His people grow? Here they are. The Word preached. The Word studied. So, this Word, when this Word is taught and you sit under it, God is teaching you in a very ordinary and ordained way. That is how you will grow. So, that's why when people say, oh, I'm a Christian, where do you go to church? Oh, I don't go to church. I don't need that. No, no, no. Sorry, you do. You do. The Bible would say you do. The Bible calls pastors to preach the Word in season, out of season, all the time. The ordinary ways for us to grow are through the preached Word, also through, hear this word, the ordinances. What are the ordinances? The Lord's Supper and baptism. A couple times a month, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And and especially if I preach a message where there's conviction, I try to remind you, listen, if you're convicted by this message, if you're convicted that you've sinned in the same way that Israel has, guess what? We're partaking of the Lord's Supper now. And Jesus died to forgive you of those sins. Take comfort. We celebrate His body and His blood. We celebrate His death on our behalf. We need that. Jesus knew we needed that. That's why He ordained it to happen. Baptism. One of the ordinances, one of the two ordinances given to the church, baptism. How many of you were here last week? You saw five people be baptized. Anybody discouraged by that? Oh, the Spirit of God is alive and changing hearts. Nah. No. I mean, you clapped. We cried. We embraced. I mean, the Lord is moving and saving people. We need to see that. We grow by that. God, I mean, this week, throughout this week, I've thought back to those five baptisms. And I've thought, Lord, you are alive. You are alive. I can be so greatly discouraged by how things are going, but you are alive. Ordinary means. Another one of the ordinary means that God gives us is in prayer. The God who created this world and created all the people in it and whom all the people on this planet have sinned against, that God listens to his children cry out to him. What an amazing reality. And so at these last three verses, we just kind of hear about Samuel's ordinary ministry. I want you to embrace the ordinary ministry that God places in your life. The preached word, the meditated upon word, prayer, and the ordinances. Maybe today some of you need to be reinvigorated to trust the ordinary means. Some of you are always looking maybe for the next conference, the next Next thing your favorite preacher is going to say out there in, you know, internet land, hey, ordinary means, sit under this word in this house, be before this word, pray to God, be here for the baptisms in the Lord's table. That's how God ordinarily grows His people. That's how it happens. Some of you know the days of the Billy Graham Crusades, and so much fruit came from those, and even in modern-day Greg Laurie events where he'll fill up a stadium and preach the gospel, and people will be converted. One of the challenges to those are people don't know much about how God ordinarily works. They think that 
a stadium's needed for salvations to happen. That's not true. But people would get saved there, and then they'd realize, I'm right before God, and they would never be taught that now you go and you live that out in ordinary ways in a local church. Studies have been done on how many people get saved at the Crusades and, know, and aren't part of any local assembly. Well, that's a problem. And some of those ministries have tried to help that and change that, and that's a good thing. But the ordinary way is this. You can't just wait around for a crusade every couple years to like reignite your relationship with God. This is the way He does it. Gather together on the Lord's day. That's why really quickly during COVID, when we stopped meeting, when everyone stopped meeting, we didn't know what was going on, then all of a sudden we were like, we can't do this forever. We got to come back. Let's make provisions, distancing, all that. Okay, but we got to be here. We're suffering spiritually when we're not under the ordinary means. So, a plug for the ordinary means of grace. This is how God normally works. It's not always on the mountaintop at Mizpah. It's as people bring the Word to you day in and day out. As you meditate on the Word day in and day out, you see the ordinances done. You partake in the ordinances, and you pray to your God day in and day out. That's the way people grow. That's the way we grow. So, do you today feel or do you recognize your distance from God? If you do, I want to draw you back to these words, repentance, intercession, victory, and then ordinary means. What does life look like going forward? Sitting under His Word, talking to Him, being reminded of His grace in baptism in the Lord's table. If, again, you're here and you are not right with God, last thing I want you to hear me say this morning, come home today. Come to God today. Yes, God is a dangerous God if you sin against Him, but He's also a restoring God who invites sinners home. Let's pray. Father, thank You for showing us Your character here. You restore Yourself to the broken, the humbled, to those who mourn over their sin. Israel isn't the hero here. Samuel isn't the hero here. You are the hero, the amazingly gracious God. Pray that every soul is amazed by that grace this morning, is wowed by that grace, and trusts you for your generous salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.